Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As ever, I'm your host Kirsten Nuts, but wait, there's more because today's special guest is about to raise the bar even higher. He has not only shot one of the greatest rock bands of all times, but also photographed American presidents and created images more than 4 billion, no, 5 billion pixels large. So buckle up, grab a cold one, and let's shake it up right after this. But before we get started, let me just say a quick thank you to our sponsor, DVE Store. DVE Store's mission is to help you create better video and provide you with the tools necessary to explore your creativity. If you have any digital video equipment needs, whether that's camera equipment, audio gear or lighting and much more, you can check them out at dvestore.com. Thank you to DVE Store for the high def video. And of course, you can find a link to DVE Store in the description. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 140. And uh, today's guest is the tour photographer for country superstar Luke Coombs. He shot the Olympic Games, Super Bowls. He had countless front covers on Sports Illustrated, Rolling Stone, Time and Newsweek. He is the ultimate Adorama TV Jedi Master and the only person who is allowed to shoot John Bon Jovi's kids. Give it up for Mr. David Berkman. David, man, how are you? <laughs> Hey, Kirsten, great. Uh, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Fantastic. So what is the, what is the deal with John Bon Jovi's kids? Uh, you know, I don't know that I'm the <laughs> only person, but uh, he was, you know, I, I was the band's tour photographer for about almost 10 years, and he's very protective of his family. He generally, especially when they were young, you know, underage uh, children, he, he was pretty good about keeping them out of the spotlight, considering what a big superstar he is and how well he's known around the world. So, but as his photographer, as his tour photographer, I spent so much time with him and his family that he actually brought me out quite a few times on family vacations to uh, to document uh, you know his family uh, time away from the uh, away from the spotlight. So that was kind of fun and a uh, really nice guy and great family. Is that, is that true that you were one of only three people who were allowed to enter his dressing room unannounced or something like that? So he told me once when I had I had just started working for him, uh, maybe I was a year in, and and one time and I was being you know. This job, when you're a tour photographer, I would say half of it is about being a good photographer. Of course, you have to be a good photographer. The other half is to know when to be in the room and when not to be in the room, right? There's very, uh, you know, celebrities and even just if you work, whoever you work with, you got to know when to be there, when to push and when to just excuse yourself. So uh, there was one time early on when I, I wasn't quite sure where that line was with him and I was being very respectful and I, I had to do something. I needed him to sign a guitar or something. I needed a picture of him signing something. And I sat outside the dressing room waiting for him after the show. And he was in there for quite a while. It was maybe about an hour. And uh, But I just sat out there and waited. That was my job. And and when he came out, he was like, you, you've been out there the whole time? And he said, look, and he told me that day, he said, there's three people who can come in my dressing room unannounced and you are one of them. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's, that help, that still holds up today, but uh, at the time, uh, that, was, that was the number. So that was quite... You know, he was very cool about that. He understood how this works. And, uh, but even so, I, that doesn't mean I pushed it, right? I went in when I had to, you know, I'm not going in and sitting down and being like, hey, John, what's going on? What, you know, what'd you have for lunch, right? You go in, you do your job and, uh, and let him do his job and, and be on your way. 
it's it must be i mean especially when you're on tour with somebody for for such a length of time which i'm guessing you know bon Jovi tours would have been going on for like the best part of a year i mean se- several months i guess right for sure for sure yeah 2013 was the biggest one i did we did 102 shows on six continents that year wow yeah, it, it, it must be. I mean, it really. I think it must come down to people skills ultimately, because I, I know because I'm, I'm a musician. In a former life, I was a performing musician, and I yeah. know how difficult it is when you're on tour and you're literally, you know, you're with the same people every day. It's it's yeah. not necessarily the, what's easy. In the in the touring industry, the expression is you got to be a good hang, right? You got to know how to hang out. If no, if you don't get along with people, if people don't like you. You know, we live on tour buses together. We're on the plane all the time. We're, we're, we work together and we live together for the most part. If people don't like you, they're kicking you off, right? You're not going to make it very far in this business. So you got to be a good hang. Yeah, you got to be a real people person, I think. You know, that's absolutely, that's definitely. Um, so how did you, how did you get to be um, on tour with, with Bon Jovi? Yeah, it's funny because people always want a good story like, John saw my pictures in Sports Illustrated and plucked me out of oblivion, you know, and it really doesn't happen like that. I'm I'm a hustler. I'm always hustling. Every anybody who's made it as a freelance photographer, really in any creative field, you're always hustling. I'm still hustling at this point in my career. So I'm constantly meeting people. I'm constantly coming up with business ideas. I'm constantly finding different ways to get to do the kind of work that I do. And Bon Jovi was just kind of that story. It's I I had done a lot in my career up to that point. You know, and I was always meeting people and I wanted to tour with, I had done other tours. I spent some time with Bare Naked Ladies and um, a few other, you know, big arena artists, but I wanted to do one of those big stadium bands, one of the giant, you know, well-known uh, playing around the world at stadiums uh, everywhere. And so I just tried to pitch everybody I could. And you can't like look up on Google, how do I contact Bon Jovi's manager? There's, there's no way to do it. So it's just in the industry and I would meet somebody randomly who's like, oh, my lawyer's brother's cousin's son works for Bon Jovi's house cleaner, you know? And um, whatever it was, anything I could get to the band, anything I get, and them and every other band that I could, you know, possibly get something to. And over the years, eventually, I wound up getting a meeting with Bon Jovi's management and that night I was shooting. So it's just, you know, you just never know where it's going to come from, but you just never stop working for it. And, and eventually, you know, you, you'll never hear about all the ones I didn't get. Right. I'm only going to, you're only going to hear about the ones I did. And so, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's not just like, Oh, I just called John Bon Jovi and he brought me out. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I don't know your background is in, is in music really. Cause you're a drummer or percussionist. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I don't play actively anymore, but I'll tell you a quick funny story. I was, uh, Doing in the '90s, I, wor- I worked at the Miami Herald. I was a staff photographer at the newspaper. I was a photojournalist, and I had to do a portrait uh, or picture session with Arturo Sandoval, who's a famous jazz trumpet player. And I was I wasn't intimidated, but I was I have such respect for him, and he's such a well known uh, person in that world. And I certainly knew who he was. And we had some time to kill before I had done my thing, and the writer we we're waiting on the writer. And I remember saying to him like, "Oh, I went to Berkeley. I used to be a musician." He goes, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." always a musician. I was like, oh, you're right. You're right. So even though I don't actively play, I am still a musician, but I, I don't actively play drums anymore. It's been a yeah. while since I've actually sat down at a drum kit, but it is my background for sure. Yeah. It's it's amazing. You know, like out of all the, the guests that we've had on the show, you know, over the last uh, few years, it's amazing how many people are also musicians or have a musical background. You know, I'm always thinking yeah. like, oh, m- one day we should put together like a camera shake band. Uh, the camera shake huh. band. You know what's funny? I've noticed that too in that I, it must be something about that part of the brain. I know a disproportionate number of photographers who specifically play drums. 
I don't know why that is. You know, musicians, a lot of musicians, but more drummers than anything else. Not a lot of bass players, not a lot of singers, a lot of drummers. So I don't know. Maybe a neurologist can tell us why that is. But it, it, <laughs> I've seen a, I've seen it. I've seen a correlation there. It's it's funny because I've had um I've had a message only last week from one of our listeners in uh in Sweden, and I've forgotten the the name of the town, uh, but I'm sure he'll be in touch to remind me. Um, but he's also a drummer. So it's okay. you, you might be you might be onto something there. There's a disproportionate yeah. amount of drummers listening to the show. Maybe I don't know. I know quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> I was just, my brain was just rattling through a whole bunch of drummer jokes, and probably I'm not going to go there <laughs> not for today. No, no. It's too it's, easy. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I I went for an audition at Berkeley many many years ago. This is in the early '90s um, for a scholarship in guitar. Unfortunately, I was one of four thousand guitarists applying oh, for this yeah, one scholarship. Go. So um, I ended up studying um, at the at the Guitar Institute, so at, okay. at, the, at the Musicians Institute, at the GIT. So that's, yeah. that's what I ended up doing. But I only um, went to Berkeley for I only went to Berkeley for one year. They say it's 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 not it's not easy to get in, but it's easier to get in than to stay in. Because a lot of a lot of musicians, you know, they move on. They, you know, they don't finish. And so I, I transferred back to the University of Miami. My hometown is Miami, Florida. And it was there where I sort of stumbled into the school newspaper. Just randomly, I had a camera, but I, it was nothing I ever really considered seriously. And I started doing that, and that's where then I sold. You know, next semester I sold my drums and bought lenses. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of where it all started. Was my uh, my second year at university. Yes, I mean it's really incredible. You know, just looking through your CV, like I mean your experience in photography is. And this is really why I called you like the you know the the Jedi Master because uh, you know just. <laughs> Just you know, watching you on YouTube and, and you know and listening to um, you know your uh, your educational YouTube videos, for example, it's just it really always strikes me how vast your use of knowledge actually is. So you know, you look at your background, and it's like yeah, you've been you know you've been a like literally a press photographer, you know, a music photographer, um, and so on. So I mean, this is just absolutely endless. You know, a sports yeah. photographer on, on the highest level. We'll talk about that, of course, um, in a minute yeah. as well. Um, you know, it's just it's just an endless array of really interesting, interesting facts about your background. You know, because I, I was thinking yeah. about like, okay, how am I going to theme this episode? Like, am I going to talk about you know music photography? Am I going to talk about um, you know sports photography? Uh, and it's like, uh, well, we're just going to talk about all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's never it's never boring. I'll, I'll say that I've definitely kept it interesting over the years. Oh, for sure, for sure. And um, so. At the moment, you're on tour with, or you've just been on tour with Luke Combs, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Well, we 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 toured. This is now early 2023. We toured um, all of 2022 uh, and part of 2021 as soon as we could come out, uh, you know, after the pandemic. And um, and yeah, we start up. We're on a short break now. We start up again, and uh, pretty soon, we're, uh, in March, mid March, 2023, we start up again. How do you find time to to record? Um, you asked David Berkman videos and stuff with all that touring going on. Yeah, it's funny because I, I've done Adorama videos now for, I think this is year eight or something like that, which is insane. Uh, I always say I've got a face for radio, but somehow they keep bringing me back. So, um, you know, for the longest time, it was a weekly show. I did first uh, three years of show we called Two Minute Tips with David Bergman. And then we switched to Ask David Bergman, which is just me taking photo questions and answering them on the show. And it's been about five years of that. Last year, I went down to every other week, which is a little more manageable. When I w when I started on tour in 2022, doing a weekly show, that was tough. I mean, obviously, I try to do a couple of them at a time and, and bank them a little bit if I can. But 
it just seems that I always was trying to play and catch up. So, uh, so now it's every other week, which is manageable. Uh, the the interesting thing about Luke Combs, anybody who doesn't know him, which everybody does, but anybody who doesn't, uh, he's a country music artist, American country music, and they tour differently from rock artists. Rock artists, like I said about Bon Jovi, you just go out for months and months at a time. Country artists are a little different. They generally, they call them weekend warriors. They like to play like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then they come home for a few days. Most of them live in or around Nashville. I'm here in New York City, but most of them are in the Nashville area. And they'll actually go home for a few days. So I was flying into Nashville, getting on the tour bus, basically Wednesday night, and then doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then flying back home on Sunday. So I was back in New York City for at least two or three days every week. This year is really interesting because Luke is so huge now. We're playing stadiums. We're playing football football stadiums all around the U.S. and Canada. And there are 16 of them, but we're only playing on Saturdays. So it's four months of touring, but it's only one show a week. So I'm going to fly in either Thursday night morning and do the show Saturday, and then I'm home Sunday. So it gives me the week to to come here in the studio and work on S. David Bergman. So it, it's been a nice balance so far. So we'll, we'll see if I can keep it up, but uh, so far so good. That's a really family-friendly way of touring. <laughs> I like it, it is. You know, country music artists, that's just that's just how they are. They like to be home. They want to be with their families. You know, everybody does, of course, but rock tours, for some reason, they just have, uh, you know, the way I've always toured, this is my first country tour. So the way I've always toured, you go out for, like I said, months at a time. You might do, you know, two or three months in Europe and then come home for two weeks and then six weeks in Japan, Australia, and then home for a month and then North America. So, um uh, so it's been nice. So I can get home. Um, I have a, a daughter at university, so I get to, she's, she's not too far away. So I get to see her every once in a while and, you know, just have a bit of a life here, uh, here at home. But, uh, I do, I do kind of miss traditional touring. I, 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 I love it. Um, I love being on the road, but it's a nice balance. Like I said, to be able to do my anorama show and, and see family and friends is kind of nice. Yeah. It's, it's difficult when you're away for it, you know, a longer stretch. And that's what I've always yeah. found. You know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, you just get used to it. You get into the groove. You get into you know the what you do on days off and what and work days, and you kind of get it. You have a system. Um, the back and forth's a little jarring because you know basically fly in, you do one massive show. We're doing like I said, we're doing stadiums, sixty to seventy thousand people a night. Um, it's an amazing adrenaline rush. It's so much fun, and then you come home for a few days. So yeah. it's a little it's a little bizarre, but uh, but it works out. We make it work. Yeah, I've always. I've- I've, I suffer terribly with jet lag. You know, it's oh yeah, yeah. It's not um, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work very well yeah. for me. It's I I don't have a problem uh, between the U.S. and like Europe, for example, uh, Japan, Australia. That one's tough <laughs> when it's yeah. when it's the complete opposite end of the world and you're twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours difference. Uh, we're playing a New Zealand, Australia in I think August of this year. And I'm excited to go. I haven't been to Australia since probably 2013. I think it was the last time I went. I did the Olympics in 20 in 2000 in Sydney, and then I was I've been there with Bon Jovi once or twice. But it's been probably 10 years since I've been down there, and I, I really love it. So, but yeah, but you pay the price. Usually not when you go over because you're on adrenaline and you get there and you start working. But usually when you come home and you have a few days off, you go, wait a minute. What day yeah. is it? What time is it? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, for me, it's always been a fly east. Uh, no, sorry, when I fly west. So when I fly to the US, right. I suffer for a good few days. And then when I come back, sure. not so much. It's all right. Um, yeah. That's how it seems to work. Um, yeah. So um, all right, So let's talk about, let's talk about music photography. Um, 
in general a little bit. We had um, another sort of a mutual friend of ours on uh, not too long ago, Steve Braswell. Yeah, yeah. Who, Braswell's um, the man. Yeah, he's the man, absolutely. So that was uh, that was fun. Now, um, <laughs> he said something to me. He said to me, he was talking about like camera setting. He said to me, yeah, you know, Berkman always sets his ISO to 6,400 uh, 6, and he just leaves it there. <laughs> yeah, yep, sure do. Yep. <laughs> So you're yeah. doing you're doing a um, you you're, sort of, you're running a workshop as well where people can learn how to shoot concerts. Tell me a little bit about right. that. So that is he you know he brings that up because uh, that's one of the things I actually teach in my workshop. So yeah, I I mean I have always I you know I've done a lot of, over the years a lot of speaking gigs. I'm a Canon Explorer of Light, and so I do uh, speaking engagements for them, and of course the Adorama show and all of that. And I I do I used to do a lot of live workshops and. Um, you know, occasionally. And it's one of those things that I would, I get emails every week, you know, from people saying, Hey, I want to do what you do. How do I do it? How, you know, how do I shoot concerts and how do I get access to shoot a concert? And I always used to say, you can't like, there's really concerts. One of those things where it's really kind of locked down sports as well, but a lot more people shoot sports professionally than concerts. There aren't a lot of full-time working tour photographers out there. So um, I'm happy to see, say that there are more and more these days because bands are un- realizing they need social media and they need good photography and video as well. So and that's been nice. But, you know, I've generally said, well, if you're a press photographer, you don't cover shows that often when I was a press photographer. When the big show comes, you know, the Rolling Stones played Miami, you know, we covered that. But you're not covering a show every night. Um and when you do cover it, you get three songs and you're out and that's it. And people want to learn how to do it and then they want to actually do it. So I came up with this idea years ago of doing a live concert photography workshop where, you know, people can learn from me during the day and then actually shoot a show. And then it was just a matter of finding a band that would actually let me do it. Right. I had to develop the workshop and, you know, have all the get all the finances in order and all of that stuff, the business part of it, which is important, and then find a band that would let me do it. And I, I basically pitched you know, everybody I could, everybody, anybody I could think of that I had worked with over the years. Um, and it's a big ask, right, To for artists to allow photographers they don't know, you know, in many cases, amateur photographers to come and photograph that and photograph the show. Artists are, are very protective about their image. So, um, you know, many of them just, it wasn't that important to them. It wasn't that, it wasn't that interesting. And Luke Combs, his manager, somebody I met years ago, um, Chris Cappy, he actually just won a big award manager of the year from the CMA touring awards. And, um, uh, he is, he's the guy who said, you know what, let's try it. Bergman, you know, we would love to have you out. And if this is what it takes to get you on the road with us, Luke was just kind of just about to break. And it was just the perfect timing to, to start with him. And so I started it in beginning of 2019. And it and I'm still doing it. <laughs> Four years later, this year I'll actually do my 100th shoot from the pit workshop with Luke. So it's been it's been incredible, and it's exactly what I said it is. Right? People people sometimes in the early days before there was that much publicity about it, people used to tell me afterward they'd say I thought it was too good to be true. There's no way this was going to be what you said it is. And they come out, they spend the day with me backstage. It's not a Luke Combs experience. You're not meeting Luke. It has nothing to do with Luke per se, other than the fact that I'm Luke's tour photographer, you're coming to a David Bergman workshop, not a Luke Combs event. And then you spend the day with me locked in a room backstage and I teach how to shoot concerts. And I, I've been doing it a long time. So I teach everything I know uh, doing it. And then we go out and we scout the venue and we, you know, we talk about angles and I tell them any, anything I can about the show to help them with that. And then that night they get to shoot and they get to shoot the whole show 
basically all access. There's, they can't, you know, I have to have something I can do that they can. I can go on stage, they can't go on stage. But other than that, they're shooting the whole show and it's it's been wildly successful. We're, I'm doing them at all the stadiums this year and they're selling out uh, as quickly as I can put them up. So I'm really happy about that. It's a, it's It genuinely is, I mean, yes, it's good business for me, of course, but also my favorite part of the night is at the end of the night, when people come back in after the last song and they go, oh my God, that was amazing. And then I get emails from people saying, this is the greatest night of my life. And they post about it on socials. And they say, this is an experience like I've never had before. And that to me is so fun because the photo industry has been good to me for a long time. And so to be able to give back in a way and allow people this experience that they could never get otherwise has been really satisfying. So anyway, that's my long spiel. But uh, but it, it really has been a fun experience and to be able to do the work that I love being a tour photographer and share it with a bunch of other people has been really satisfying. It's a really interesting thing because as you say, it's very difficult to actually put yourself into that situation otherwise. Yeah. You know, and especially, yeah. you know, being able to uh, to shoot a whole gig rather than just, a, you know, the initial three songs or something. Yeah. And I don't um, lie to people. I'm not. I'm not discouraging. I'm. I'm an optimist. And if somebody really is passionate about it and they can't imagine doing anything else with their life, then I say pursue it. Look, look what I do for a living. Right? I mean, it's insane that I get to do this for a living every night. I can't believe that I. This is how I get. How I make a living. But when people come to me in my workshop and they say, you know, I want to do this as a business, I say, okay. But here are the challenges, and this is how it works. And we talk some business. Um, some workshops we talk more than others, depending on the time, but I'm always happy to talk one-on-one -on -one with people about the business. And, uh, you know, it is a hard business. It's a photography in general. I always say it's a great hobby. It's a tough business, right? It's really hard to make a living in any kind of artistic field because there's so many people willing to do it for free, for cheap. You know, there's so much talent out there. Um, so how do you separate yourself? How do you differentiate yourself? How do you get paid to do it? Um, that's what I've, you know, I have other talks that I've done about these kinds of things. And there's certainly had a round of videos about it that, you know, how I've done it and, uh, and uh, it, it can be done, but it's just not for the faint of heart. Let's put it that way. That's it. It's always, you know, it's always good to remember that, uh, you know, artistic disciplines, you know, no matter whether it's music or photography, um, you know, it's always the thing where you do a number of different things. You have a lot of, as we say, a lot of fingers in a lot of pots and mm -hmm. You know, the, the combined sum of everything is what actually constitutes your living in in a sense. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, as a musician, sure. you know, I've spent I've spent over twenty years being a session musician, and I, you know, for me, it's oh, been amazing. like, you know, it's been like, okay, well, you know, okay, there's some income from recordings, but then there's some income from gigs. There's some teaching. You know, there's all sorts of different things that yeah. together actually then you know make up your make up your living. I, I realized recently that yeah, I mean, I. I mean, I've had these different phases of my career, as you've kind of mentioned. I was a photojournalist, sports photographer. Now I'm mostly known as a music tour photographer. But I realized, like, these days, honestly, I'm a photo educator, like, more than anything right now, mm. which is weird to me. I never, you know, I'm still consider, I still consider myself a working tour photographer, and certainly that is, I'm passionate about that. But I, I'm really passionate about the education part, too. And between my, you know, YouTube videos and my workshops, it's a big part of my career right now. So... That was kind of a, uh, you know, uh, they kind of hit me recently. Like, oh yeah, I guess I'm just as much of an educa educator as I am a photographer now, which I never, I never really planned it that way. But as as we've kind of talked about, I've I've moved around through different fields a little bit, and that's you kind of roll with it. You kind of find what you like, and and you look for opportunities, and and I push through them, and that's how I've done what I've done. And it's also, you know, I, I think of it like a pendulum. It's like a pendulum that swings, you know, around. It's, 
you know, sometimes sometimes the the emphasis is sort of focuses on more on the education side of things, and then sometimes it's more on the you know on the like from a musician's point of view on the live performance part of thing. And sometimes you sure. spend more time in the, in the studio recording, and that's just you know that's just how how it goes. Um, yeah, but in a sense, that's what makes it viable because otherwise, if you're concentrating on just one thing, then it's difficult. You know, when the work isn't coming in this particular niche then yep. you immediately have a problem you can't really you can't really swim as you know? we learned a couple of years ago with covid i mean you know oh, that's absolutely. the way i have friends who are only in the touring business not necessarily photographers you know tour crew people who that that was their whole life as it as it is for people in that world and that went away like that right it all went away so uh, many of them left the business we lost a lot of great people in the touring world because they just had nothing and um so they've found other careers and they a lot of them haven't come back so uh i'm fortunate that yes my income went way down during covid but i still had adorama i did a few online workshops that you know we did i did individual uh, workshops that way and i always i occasionally sell prints and like you just said you have you have multiple streams of income of course i have investments i have other things you know to uh to bring in some income as well so even though it was down, I was able to survive through that. And then now that it's picked up again, it's all great again. So uh, it's important knowing the business. I, I I say it all the time. You've got to know the business. You can't just be like, "Ooh, I like taking pretty pictures." You know, it's just not enough uh, to make it. It's a great great hobby. That's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to do it as a business, it's just as much a business as it is a creative art. See, the business side is is often something that's that's being overlooked, and I think that's very typical. Again, you know, because because creatives don't necessarily think about the business side of it first. They usually, yeah, you, know, you think about the creative part of it first, which makes we don't perfect want to. sense. We don't oh, want to. We got into this because so, we didn't want to do business, <laughs> right? Exactly I mean, right. if I had gone into the corporate world early on in my career, I probably would have made a lot more money, but I, I wouldn't be as fulfilled. I wouldn't be as satisfied. I love what I do, and I'm fortunate that I do okay in this business. So, um, uh, you know, so some of us actually actually make it work, but it's it's tough. It's not an e it's not easy. And like I said before, it never ends. You're always always looking at the next thing and trying to anticipate potential issues and where things are going and and uh, and keep moving forward. And then of course things like you know, like COVID um, happen, and it's it's a right you know it's a real curveball because you I mean this is not something anybody could have anticipated, sure. you know, especially I mean, especially in the creative world. I mean you know. For me, it was uh, I was predominantly shooting conferences before COVID, oh, and yeah. uh, of course that whole side of the business well, went down the pan immediately. Yeah. You know, uh, and yeah. it took a long time. I mean, it's still not back in, to the same extent as it was, yeah. um, but uh, but that went downhill very very quickly, like literally within a day. I remember there was mm -hmm. one particular day. I think it was in I think it was in March 2020. There was one day when my phone wouldn't stop ringing. It was just one cancellation after another cancellation. Oof, and I think by rough. the end of that day, I was literally looking off a. I was looking at a clear diary for the rest of 2020, and I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, you're like, oh, okay, what do I do now? Yeah, what's happening? Yeah. I mean, you know? obviously, you know, that was hopefully a once in a generation kind of thing, and but but the point still stands. You know, multiple streams of income. You know, mind your business. You know, make sure you've got money saved. All of that kind of stuff. So that you can weather something like that and don't go completely under and have to, you know, change careers. So, uh, yeah, exactly. That works. It's it's a it's an important lesson for anybody to learn. I mean, you know, no matter what yeah. creative field you're in, a particular photography. Um, sure. So I, I'd say let's um let's let's deep dive a little bit into uh, into shooting 
uh, into shooting gigs to start with. And again, we'll we'll come back to to uh, sports photography as well because I, I quite I quite like the fact that we've got this duality of of topics to talk about, especially sure. because I've looked at some of your images. Oh, this is this is funny. So I've looked at some of your images, of course, in like you know in the run up to this episode, and then I realized that that I had seen some of your images before without realizing they were yours. Like it's in particularly, I'm thinking um, it was, uh, I think it was President Obama's inauguration, uh, mega image, which yeah blew my mind. But anyway, we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, okay, music photography. So I think, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I get asked all the time, because again, just in, in brackets, um, when I, when I sort of uh, phased out my playing career, uh, per se, I literally um, went from being on stage to photographing the stuff that was going on stage, and that's that's sort of how I got into the world of photography, um, in the most ridiculous way <laughs> possible. You know, so I, I did for the longest time. I didn't realize that you could shoot at f eight. Like you know, yeah. people would say to me, "Oh yeah, f eight." It's like, oh, it's, well, it's not going to be black. I mean, <laughs> f eight. Nobody shoots at f eight. Clearly, because right. in a you know in a concert situation, that's just not not a thing. Right. But, um. The, so what I get asked a lot is, you know, how do you deal with uh, first of all the, you know, the the lighting at a concert and the ever changing lighting situation? What's what would be like your top advice for people trying to? Yeah. And so as as Brazil sort of mentioned, I mean, he's not kidding that I do basically leave my eyes up in my workshop. Obviously, I have a long thing where I explain why all this, why I do all this this way and. And look, let me preface this by saying everybody finds their own way of doing things, right? That's the beauty of creative fields. You know, I can only talk about how I've done it and how I've done it for many, many years, and it works for me. So take my advice or don't. But uh, the basic concept is whenever you've got something with fast changing light conditions um, where you need to adjust your exposure, right? You've got three settings that you can change, right? And new photographers, the mistake they make is you know, they're told to shoot on manual and you've got to control everything and, and they take a picture and it doesn't look right. And then they change all three settings and it still doesn't look right. And then their head explodes, right? Cause you can't troubleshoot that. You don't know where to go. So my whole uh, system that I've sort of developed over the years is about eliminating variables, right? Cause when you, the best action pictures, the best, and when I teach in concert photography, I'm really teaching action photography, sports, anything with movement. I don't care if it's your kids running around the backyard or, you know, a soccer match or football or a concert, it's all pretty much the same. When there are fast changing light conditions, you have to make those adjustments quickly because you want to get those moments, right? The, the best pictures happen like that and you don't know that they're coming. And if you're too busy thinking about your camera, looking at your screen, changing settings, every time you do that, I know you, you feel this too. Every time you look at your camera, you go, oops, something happened right in front of you. It, it's, it's always happens. So, my whole system that I've developed is about eliminating variables. So trying to set your camera as much as possible to not change things. And so to get it out of your head so you don't have to think about it. So, you know, again, there's a longer thing in my workshop, but basically it's about it, at least two of your three exposure variables in the exposure triangle. You, I, I argue that you can set them and forget them and just forget about it. And when you're dealing with something like a concert, you know, you're going to be at a high ISO, right? Because we're not, unless you're doing an outdoor, you know, daytime festival, but in a in an indoor uh, with artificial lighting, you're going to be at a high ISO. My cameras now, these, you know, I'm a Canon shooter. 
the R3, the R5, these things, I can we can crank the ISO now in a way that we couldn't do even 10 years ago. So 6400, I have 6400 looks amazing. You, I are, you cannot tell the difference on Instagram between 6400 and 100. I promise. Nobody's zooming in and going, that's a great picture, but look at the noise in the shadows, right? It doesn't happen. Only photographers care about ISO noise. So 6400, even 12,800. So by setting my ISO and not touching it all night long, I do the same thing with my aperture. I'm shooting not at f8, as you say, you know, I'm shooting pretty much wide open, either at 2.8 or f4. You can use f4 lenses. I even use the 100 to 400, that's a 4.5 to 5.6, and I'll just lock it at 5.6 because at 6400 or even 12,800 at 5.6, I'm still getting 800 of a second, 1,000 of a second shutter speeds. So I can still capture those moments. So then all I have to do is change my shutter speed to adapt to the lighting. And that's it, right? So, and that's, I've got that on my four finger dial, right? So I can be looking through the lens and move over from, you know, Luke in the spotlight to one of the guitarists who's not in the spotlight. And I can just dial that one dial and brighten it up and keep shooting and not miss those moments. I see, I love so it. I love it because uh, that's exactly what I do. It's yeah, <laughs> exactly what I do. And, um, yeah. and, and, and I, I came up with it for exactly the same reasons, like, yeah, totally yeah. independently. Um, you because you want to be fast. If you have to, if you have to start going, okay, I need yep. to shoot. Something's about to happen over there, right? It's about anticipating, paying attention to what's happening, paying more attention to what's happening in front of the lens than what's happening in your camera. So if I and look over there and I go, oh, two musicians are running towards each other. The picture is going to be when they first get together. I go, bah, right? I mean, that's the picture. So after they're there, it's not the same. So. Uh, and that was from my sports training, you know, all my years of shooting sports. You missed that very first. It only happened to me. Well, I won't admit if it happened to me more than that. But early on in my career, when I was in at, at university, I was at the University of Miami, and there was a big game, and the kicker on the opposite team, on the the rival team, missed a field goal, and I was a student at the university, and I was like, oh my god, he he missed it, you know, I was so happy. And the photographer next to me was like, um, you might want to be shooting this, right? So because that immediate picture when he missed it and he fell down, you know, crying and the players in the background were jumping up in the air. That's a half a second and it's gone. Right. And so I learned that moment. I'm like, you can't, you know, be thinking about anything else. You just have to be watching that moment and waiting for those moments. So, um, so again, by eliminating, I jokingly call it by leaving one ver. it's not always shutter speed with concerts. I believe it right. always is going to be shutter speed, but in other situations, it might be your ISO or your aperture that you're going to change if you're in those fast lighting dishes, depending on what you're shooting. But I jokingly call that your Bergman brightness button. <laughs> <laughs> so like that button, it basically is controlling the brightness of your image. And that's it. And by leaving it to one variable, you can react so much faster and, not, and forget about the camera and make those pictures that are going to be better than everybody else's. Yeah, you know, the reason why I love that is because I've got I've got the, the, the shutter speed on, on my thumb dial. So okay. I don't even have to take my my face off of the off of the viewfinder. You know, I could just literally move around, yeah. and I know exactly, you yeah. know, which it's way to move. It's just muscle memory. Yeah, my, my, like I said, it's my forefinger, but it's the same thing. My forefinger's right there. I mean, yeah. yes, I guess I have to move it from my shutter button, but it, you know, they're right next to each other, so it, it yeah. doesn't bother me at all. I I don't like using the back one because 
you know, I'm always worried my face is going to move it or the, you know, my body's going to oh. move it or something like that. So I lock that back, that back dial and just use my, my forefinger. Yeah. On the Nikon stay, the back dial is really quite solid. So there's this, there's virtually no chance of that, of that moving, especially okay. now uh, with the, I used to D750 for the longest time to shoot concerts because okay. I just, it just worked really well for me. It's some really good results yeah. with the camera. To be fair, I haven't, I probably haven't tried that in a long time. So I don't know, maybe that was old, you know, cameras years, many years ago, but it's probably not the same today, but uh, yeah. It's just habit, you know, whatever works for you is that you can switch as fast as possible. There you go. That's exactly. what works. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, all right. So let's talk about your sports photography um, for a minute. Because I know you've, I mean, again, I mean, just like, you know, just like with concerts, um, you've really, I think you've pushed the possibilities in sports photography really to the absolute max. I mean, you've, you know, you've shot multiple Olympic games, you know, Super Bowls um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. What's it like shooting the Olympic Games? Because I know you shot um, the Olympic Games in London, right? I did. Yeah, I think that was the last one I did. So I've done five Olympics. Wow. Um, I did. I've done three winter and two summer, which is funny because I'm from Miami and the Miami, Florida, where you know it doesn't snow. And my very first Olympics was 1998 in Nagano, Japan, for the Winter Olympics. Right. And the very first day they sent me to cover the luge, and I had never seen the luge live. I mean, I had seen it, you know, a couple times on TV passing through the channels, but I knew very little about it. They were like, we'll send Miami boy over to cover the luge. And, uh, I figured it out, but it was not, it was a challenge. The first, the first, uh, hour or so I was like, wait, how fast are they moving? They, they move a lot faster than I expected. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the Olympics is, I, I, I used to say the Olympics is like covering three Super Bowls a day, every day for three weeks. Because the Super Bowl is just one event, you know, it's a three-hour event, and it's a lot of buildup, and you spend the whole day there, and it's. But the most, for the most part, it's logistics, it's security, it's getting the position, getting your position, all that. The Olympics, you do that at that level in the morning, and then you take a media bus to another event, and you do it in another event, and then you do one other event that night, and it's intense. It's you don't get any sleep covering the Olympics. I'm not complaining about it at all. It's amazing to be at those events. I do miss now that I don't really do sports anymore at that level. I, I miss the, I miss being at those events. I miss the camaraderie with all the other photographers because what I do now, my camaraderie is with my crew who I love, you know, the, the other guys on the tour, the guys and, and girls on the tour. Um, but I'm not around a lot of other photographers. Uh, whereas we would covering our local events when I was at the newspaper, we always had competition. We always had our other, you know, the other newspapers. And then it, when I moved onto the national stage, you know, it's the same people over and over at the Olympics and the Super Bowls and the World Series. And and so we'd get together socially and then, because we hadn't seen each other since the last Super Bowl, and then we'd compete on the sidelines. And that was kind of fun. I do miss that a little bit. I do not miss running up and down the sidelines in Buffalo, New York in a blizzard. I don't miss that. So, although I got to say, now that Luke's playing stadiums, we have had a few really bad rain uh, rainstorms. We played Seattle last summer, and it just poured the entire show. And, I, and we're outdoors at a stadium. I was like, I didn't think I was going to have to deal with this anymore. But every once in a while, it uh, it comes out. I'm sure the stadiums this year, we have a few that are covered, but most of them are going to be outdoors. So that'll be fun. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's good, there's good and bad. I, there's certainly parts of it I miss, but... I feel like I did so much of that, and and now I enjoy I enjoy doing the music stuff uh, at this point in my career. Were you were you always like a, a big sports fan? 
Is that what drew you? Yeah, not really. I mean, when I was a kid, a little bit, but I wasn't a huge sports fan. I kind of stumbled into it because of the University of Miami, where, like I said earlier, I, I, I sort of stumbled into the school newspaper just for something to do for fun. Um, and the University of Miami football was king. I mean, that was this was the late 80s early, uh, when I first started there. And they were winning national championships, their football team. It was it was a big deal. So to, to the newspaper and the yearbook photographers who had worked their way up the ladder got to shoot football games. Like that was the big thing. So I always looked at that as like the primo job. So um, so I I worked my way up in that in that system and I was traveling with the team on this on the charter to the games, and then I was again designing the newspaper and and photo editor of the uh, designing the yearbook and photo editor of the newspaper and all that. So, um, and we won national championships, and I got to cover all that, and it was a blast. I love the pictures. I love sports action pictures. Uh, you know, people flying through the air and those little thousandths of a second that you don't even see with the human eye of people levitating and. I remember looking at Sports Illustrated when I was a kid, and there's a picture, and I think it was taken by John McDonough, who I, you know, I got to work with uh, years later. But I, I'm sorry, John, if this isn't yours, but I remember it was they made it into a vertical. It was a two-page picture, and you turned it vertically, and it was, uh, I think it was North Carolina basketball, and it was frozen in midair, you know, because it was strobes and it was beautiful and it was blue and it was just gorgeous and it was this cool graphic image and just all the players were just levitating in midair, right? And it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, I just looked at that thing for hours. I'm like, that's amazing. So uh, I've always loved that. I've loved capturing those moments and again, that you don't even necessarily see with the human eye uh, in real time, but then you can actually put on a piece of paper or now on a computer screen or whatever and just look at it and go, man, that's cool. If, if, if I make a picture that makes you go, holy cow or wow or something like that, then I've accomplished my job. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, it's a fascinating part about uh, that kind of imagery. It's because although, you know, you might be watching that action, you know, either live in the stadium or on TV or something, but of course, just being able to freeze frame like yeah. a split second of something that literally only existed for that one split second. Yeah. There's yeah. that that legendary image taken by Neil Leifer, who I'm fortunate to be to be friends with as well, of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, you know, was like yeah. screaming down at him. And if you ever see the video of that, you don't even see that happening. He he falls and he kind of goes, whoop, and that's and it's like it just goes, it's not even doesn't even hit your brain as a moment. But then when you look at that image, I have that framed print of that from Neil. Uh, in my apartment, and uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's just majestic, and it's it, it's insane. And and yeah, that there's something about a still image that just sears into our brain in a way that video is powerful. I get it, and especially with music and you know with sound and things like that, it's a sensory experience. But to look at a single image in a book or a print or something like that, and just look at it, and there's so much to see. It's an art form that I I hope never goes away. It's really very revealing as well. It's re real, it reveals so much. It's a little bit like, you know, peeling back the, the outer layers of an onion until you get to the actual core of it. It's like, sure. because with, with an image like the Muhammad Ali image, it's, you know, you can you can see the emotion written all across the face. And of yep. course, in real life, it just, that just disappears. It's just a fleeting moment. Yep. But Pull up it, the video, you know, and it's like, it, it doesn't look anything like that picture. It really doesn't. It doesn't have anywhere near the emotion um, of that moment that Neil captured so brilliantly. So um, I know that a lot of a lot of our listeners uh, really like 
to shoot sports. Um, in fact, I know that my local um, photo club or camera club over here, um, they always um, look for many sports events throughout the season uh, to go and shoot. And I know they, um, I think I saw some images for a basketball game that was happening um, only like last week or something. So if you were to give them one like super solid monster tip uh, when it comes to shooting oh, sports, boy. what would it be? Oh, goodness. Um, I think the... I think the big one would be to to really make the great pictures besides the exposures thing I already talked about, uh, your Bergman brightness button. Besides that, um, I think knowing the sport is important. I mean, I remember my first big assignment for Sports Illustrated. I had, I had moved to New York City and I had done a few freelance jobs for them when I was in Miami. So they knew who I was and I already had sort of an in, but now that I was in New York and they actually assigned me to cover an event, they sent me to cover the Daytona 500, which is a NASCAR car racing event. I didn't grow up with NASCAR. I didn't know anything about NASCAR, right? The 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 longer story that I won't get into why that why they sent me there was because I was sort of the first digital photographer at Sports Illustrated because I was shooting digital at the newspaper and they were still shooting film and they wanted me to help them with that transition. So they started sending me to some of the biggest events early on, right when I had just started, basically to back up their film photographers. And with Nat, with the Daytona 500 in particular, it was about um, if the there was a rain delay or something like that and the, the race had been pushed to Monday, I could shoot it digitally and get it into the magazine, whereas the film photographers would have a much harder time because the magazine closed on Monday every week. So um, so the, the end of the, to answer your question, since I didn't know anything about NASCAR and I was going to be with some of the world's best NASCAR photographers, you know, the Sports Illustrated staff who who did this every year, um, I literally went out and bought the book. I'm not kidding. I bought the book NASCAR for Dummies and I read it cover to cover. This is back when you had to actually buy the book 20 years ago. Um, this was February 2001 and read it cover to cover and did, you know, you couldn't Google everything like you can today. So I had to understand how the sport worked. You know, I'm I'm never going to know it as well as the, the the photographers who who covered it all the time in that shorter period of time. But that week, I did as much research as I could, and it helped me. It helped me to have some idea what was going on. Over the years, when I would shoot a football game, for example, if it's a giant field, right, and where do you place yourself? Place placement at sports is hugely important because if you know I'm shooting this team and I know that. They've got a really, uh, you know, great wide receiver and the quarterback's a, a legend. And, you know, I might choose to be further downfield because I know he's there's a good chance he's going to throw a nice long bomb to that receiver. If the other team's got a great defense, they've got a linebacker core that's, you know, the best in the, in the league, I might line up behind the quarterback so that if they come in and they sack him, I can make that picture. You can't be in both places. So... Just knowing the sport, knowing the players, knowing, I don't mean literally knowing them, but knowing, you know, this well enough to be able to anticipate what's going to happen. It's all about trying to anticipate what's going to happen before it happens. You're doing the same thing that the teams are doing. They're trying to guess what the opponent's going to do so they can be in the right position. We have to do the same thing as photographers. And that's how you really separate yourself and make those great images. It's all about preparation. It's all about preparation. Absolutely. This Absolutely. Is, you know, this is really something... Um, that I've experienced myself actually in in music photography, you know, because as I said earlier, you know, that transition for me from from music into photography was actually via music. You know, I like I said, you know, I I uh, used to play on stage, and then I literally just you know grabbed the camera and started shooting stuff that was going on on stage. Um, That's but, so awesome. But because I spent 
you know, I mean, at that point, you know, I, I spent more than two decades, you know, performing on stage. Um, yeah. I sort of, I had a really good idea of what was happening on stage. And so, you know, that's really informed a lot of things that I, that I sort of just, uh, gotten used to like for slens choice is a really good example you know my thing is always when i get to when i get to shoot three songs and i only shoot with one body um okay. you know i i use a a wider lens like a 24 to 70 for the first track and so the reason i do that is because it gives me the opportunity to figure out how those characters on stage behave because you know I... you've got you've got sometimes you've got guitarists that are you know, nailed to the same spot for the whole show. <laughs> right. Then you've got guys right. who, who take advantage of the whole width and breadth of the stage and, you know, are very active and movers, basically. And the same thing is true for, you know, for elite singers and bass players and yep. whatever. Um, and so the first song, shooting everything wider, gives me an opportunity to figure that out and to just to see how those people are tuned, basically. Yeah. Because then for the second track, when I switch to a longer lens... I already know what to expect. So uh, as a guitarist, I know what to expect from a guitarist. And if somebody's stood in the same place and maybe he's bouncing up and down, I sort of know what to expect. And if I've got somebody who's, you know, running up and down, jumping off the off the four by twelve speakers or whatever at the end, I also know what to expect, you know. So yeah. so for me it's always been this thing of like, okay, first song, it's a twenty four to seventy, let's say. You know, and I figure out what's going on. The second song, I can get all the detailed shots and all the close-ups because I kind of I know how they tick. And then for the third song, I usually I usually play, maybe with a super wide or something like that. But that's just yeah. this sort of system that I've kind of worked out for myself, and it seems to work for me. And I have fun doing <laughs> doing it like yeah. that. You no, know? it, it, I mean you're right. I mean it's exactly what what you've got to do because I I mean I shoot two bodies and you know I, mm. I but but if. Thankfully, I don't do the three songs and out very often anymore. I can't remember the last time I did that, right. but um, but uh, if I was doing that, an, an artist that I didn't know, I hadn't photographed before, now you can go online and you can watch videos of the show from this tour, right? And you can watch the first three songs and you can actually see that even before you get there, right? And you can see, oh, there's a pyro hit at the this the first beginning of the first chorus and. You know, he tends to jump off the stage. I recently sh uh, photographed uh, Stephen Page, who used to be the, uh, he was the co-founder of Bare Naked Ladies, and he's a solo artist now, and he was, he actually has a trio, and he brought me out to photograph his trio. They were opening for The Who, which was pretty awesome, and I know him well enough that I know his movements. I know what he likes to do. I know there's one song that he does. In the old days, he used to jump at the at that song, you know? And I was ready for it. If he, if he, I didn't know if he was going to do it, I didn't know how high he was going to get, but I got as low as I could and I was ready and he did it and I got the picture. And, I, and afterward, I was like, all right, you're still doing the jump, you know? So, um, you know, that's, and it's only, it only happens once and that's it. So, uh, yeah, preparation and anticipation. I often think photographers have to be amateur psychologists in a way, whether you're in the studio working with a model or, or, or a journalist documenting what's happening. And you're what anything with people, um, I'm constantly and again getting your getting your head out of the camera. This sort of goes back to that and ignoring the camera and having your camera being confident and everything set with your camera. I'm watching my subject's eyes and I'm trying to anticipate what they're going to do. Just like you said, like are they somebody who's running around? Are they having a good day? Are they having a bad day? Are they going to move left? Are they going to move right? You know, the the more you can try to anticipate what they're going to do, you can prepare to make a better picture 
So I actually wear, I think I'm the only the only one that I know of, the only tour photographer that does this. I have a pair of my own in-ear monitors. You you wore in-ears, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. You know, they're very expensive. I spent a lot of money. They're custom molded. And I have a wireless pack just like the band does. And so our tour gives me my own wireless pack and I have a mix and I can hear the talkback mics. So I can hear when our guitar players are talking to their techs and I can hear when the band members are talking to each other. So even if I'm all the way in the upper deck making a wide shot, if something goes wrong, somebody breaks a string or somebody's having a great solo or something, I hear it. And that helps me to anticipate to make better pictures because I know everything that's going on. I'm paying attention and uh, and that really I've found helps quite a bit uh, here and there. It's it's all about research and prep. I mean, this you know I don't know how many times I've 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 tried to impress that on on people you know in the in the past. Um, I've just been I've been running a um, a lighting workshop and the uh, one of the main uh, one of the main sort of sticking points is is that is that you really you know if you if you come into a studio and. Uh, and you're doing a portrait session, for example, you need to have done all the prep and all the preparation beforehand, you know, all the research beforehand, um, in order yeah. to in order to know what you're actually going to be doing. Because you know, it's it's a very dangerous game to play if you're expecting the creative spark to just spark off at that very moment at that time. You know, what if it doesn't? Well, <laughs> then I mean, obviously, screwed. yes, you prepare as much as you can. Then you have to be open to some spontaneity yeah, as well. There's a fantastic story by Platon, you know, the uh, portrait photographer. He's amazing. And I'll, I'll just paraphrase it, but basically he had to do a, a picture of Vladimir Putin for Time Magazine. This was like 20 years ago and it was a KGB and it was a whole thing and they weren't going to allow him to shoot. And it's a fantastic story. But basically he had done his research and every picture he saw of Putin, he was very, you know, stoic and very tough and all that, except for a series of pictures Platon found of Putin with Paul McCartney in Red Square when McCartney played in Red Square, he was. He said he was like a giddy schoolgirl in these pictures, and so Latan kept that in his back pocket. And he wasn't gonna. He wasn't supposed to be allowed to sh to do the portrait. You know, when the shoot finally came to be, and he he brought it up. He said, "Hey, what was? I think he said, what was it like to hang with McCartney? Or who's your favorite Beatle? Or something like that." And Boot was just like started talking about McCartney, and like it was great. And they had a back and forth and they got to chatting and then he was like all right come do the picture basically and he got like 90 seconds or whatever it was and he made the cover of time magazine and it's just that kind of stuff i love that because those are the little things you know you look at a picture and you go ah i could have done that you know it's like but you have no idea all everything that went on before that shoot and during that shoot and yeah, you could have done that maybe, but you didn't. And he did, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, I sometimes, uh, it's easy to to look at what I do sometimes and say, oh, I'm I'm in the dressing room with John Bon Jovi and I'm making a picture of him writing the set list. And I'm not lighting it. I'm not using any weird techniques or any special lenses. I'm just using a 24 to 70 and available light. And, and I'm like, and the, I used to say to myself, you know, the devil in my on my shoulder would say, any other photographer standing here would could make this same picture. And then I say, yeah, but no other photographer is. I'm the photographer standing here, and there's 30 years that have taken me to be the guy standing here, right? The, the guy who can, one of the three people who can go in his dressing room unannounced. So um, it's not just about the photography. It's all of that other stuff and the psychology and the preparation and all of it comes together and hopefully you make it look easy. That's that's the job, right? There's a similar story with Annie Leibovitz when she shot the Queen, like Queen Elizabeth. 
Yes, um, I remember reading that or seeing that. Yeah, where she, uh, you know, she had a obviously as always, she'd have very limited time, a very short window of time, sure. and everything has to be as 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 prepped as possible. And I think she yeah. was trying to. It's interesting actually because this one one shot, uh, which is a famous window shot, where uh, you know Queen Elizabeth is uh, inside in the palace, but you know an open window next to her and her dress is uh-huh. you know uh, whatever you, whatever you call it like you know draped across the floor um yep. and i think in in preparation for that shot Eddie Lieber was asked i just made it she just made a sidebar comment and she just says something like i wonder what it would look like without the crown and it was immediate <laughs> silence in the room that's <laughs> like right. right. <laughs> Don't no, 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 mention yeah. the crown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I've never, I've never met a royal. I, I, I like to say I photographed the queen once, but it was from a distance. I mean, it was at the Olympics, and she was there. You know, um, so it wasn't like I had a like Annie Leibovitz. I didn't have a one on one with the queen, but um, but I, I know there's all kinds of rules, and even that, like you know, we talk about preparation. You need to be prepared for that. You know, you. You can't just assume. Oh, I can just, you know, set up my lights in the in the palace. Like, are they going to let you set up, put stands down in right. in a you know a room that's a thousand years old? I don't know. You know, so uh, on a rug that costs more than this whole building in New York City. So, um, so yeah, you got to be prepared for that stuff. Now, that's not a situation too many people are going to come across, but uh, but you can apply that to pretty much anything you do. Absolutely. Now, in fact, uh, talking about the the very image that you just mentioned of. Um, of Queen Elizabeth, I think it was part of the Olympic Games. Um, if I remember, it was one of the Megapan images. Yeah, yes, Gigapan, Gigapan, Gigapan. Yes. That's it. Yep. So, yep. Th- all right. So let's let's talk about that technique. Good segue. I like the segue. Oh, well absolutely. Done. Yeah. So I mean, Gigapan. <laughs> that was a thing. Uh, that was actually the image. I think it was the um, the Obama inauguration image that where the penny dropped and was like, oh, it was David Berkman's image. Duh, of course. Um, there you go. Of course. It, so most people are familiar with uh, creating panoramas on, on your camera, where you basically take a number of different images and you either manually or automatically stitch them together in order to create one big image, which then of right. course allows you to um, create an image that has a much higher resolution than the individual image had. Right. But you've really taken that to the absolute mega extreme, I should say giga extreme, <laughs> Uh, by by creating images that are several billion pixels big, which yeah. is which is first of all just from a purely from a data perspective is incredible. But when you actually start zooming into these images and realize that you can that you can make out like literally fine detail in people who are tiny in the image, that that just completely blew my mind at the time. Yeah, so the the Gigapan system, there was a company called Gigapan Systems. Um, They unfortunately are no longer a company, but they had developed um, hardware. It was originally developed by the uh, people at NASA, a team at NASA for the Mars rover program. You know, those those images on the surface of Mars that are all stitched together. So the the scientists, incredibly smart people who developed that system, uh, license that technology to Gigapan, and then they developed this hardware where basically it's a robotic camera mount that you put your camera in. And like you said, you can already manually sort of shoot overlapping pictures and stitch them together. What this did is it it um, 
it unified the the, the movement um, or made it more consistent so that then, and then they made the, the hardware and the software and the stitching software. So it was a lot easier than, than do the, doing it manually. It would sort of move on its own and it was consistent as far as the movement and the overlap. And then you could take, instead of just five or 10 or 20, you could take hundreds of images. So the thing was, this all came about for me because I had somehow managed to get a photo credential for President Obama's first inauguration in 2009. And I was just going to go as a journalist and cover it. I mean, it was the biggest event of that, of our, you know, our generation at that time. There were going to be 2 million people there. And it was obviously a very historic moment. And I, the thing is, I'm a, I'm not a Washington DC insider. I'm, I'm, I live in New York. I don't, I didn't have any connections with the political world as far as the photographers who work there all the time. So I was just going to be coming in. I had my assigned spot that was pre-assigned and one of the big platform, one of the press risers. And so the picture that everybody wants at an inauguration, the historical photo is the new president with his hand on the Bible and the other hand in the air, right? Taking the oath of office. That's sort of the, the traditional historical photo. Well, you need to be on the other side of the, of the Capitol to make that picture. My assignment was on the backside. So I was gonna have the back of his head and I'm gonna be looking at the Supreme Court justice. So I knew I wasn't gonna really make a great picture of that. So I started thinking, okay, this is what I do. I started thinking, okay, there's gonna be 500 of the world's best photographers there. Why am I bothering? What, what do I bring to the table? What can I do that's gonna be different? Otherwise, they can just pick up the picture from anybody else, right? So what? why are they paying me to be there? Why should I be there? So I started thinking, okay, the second part of the story, besides the fact that it was the first African-American president in US history, was that there were going to be 2 million people there, which is an insane amount of people. I've been to big events. I've never seen 2 million people in one place. So the short version of the story is I, I contacted, I started doing research. How can I show all of these people in one picture? I looked at these weird like 360 lenses. I was looking at all kinds of different systems and I came across Gigapan and I contacted them. It was a brand new company at the time. And all they had on their website were landscapes because again it had been really primarily developed for that those kinds of landscape photos and i contacted somebody there and i said has this ever been used for where there are people because there's overlapping areas and there's movement and and they were like nope <laughs> and i was like well i'm covering the inauguration i might want to try it they were like yeah we'll send you a loaner if you want like that'd be great if you want to use it i was like okay so I brought it with me to DC. I literally took it out of the box the night before. I read all the paperwork. They didn't even have a manual. It was like a Xerox, you know, papers of how to do it. I tried it out in my hotel room the night before. Next day, it was a total secondary thought to me. It was like just a sidebar thing. I was shooting my real photos of the inauguration. And then I just let that thing do its, do its, I set up the parameters, I set it up as best I could, and I let it run. And then I, you could sort of, when it finishes, it basically shoots a grid. Um, across and then down and across and down and across. And I had it set up so it was doing, if I remember correctly, it was 220 images. So I think it was uh, 22 across by, uh, or 20 across by 11 down or something like that. Um, I don't know if that math works out, but it was something like that. And uh, I just let it go. And then at the end of the day, I transmitted all my real photos. And then I was like, oh yeah, I wonder if that thing ever did anything. And I loaded the images into the computer, put them in the stitching software, and it makes the grid of the scene and it's all the way from the left to all the way to the right you know about 180 degrees left to right, and it's as far as you can see zoomed in 
pictures, 220 zoomed in pictures. And then I let it stitch overnight. The next morning, I actually had to drive home the next day and I uploaded it to my blog and Facebook was kind of new at the time. And I made one post. I was like, hey, check this thing out. Uh, a week later, I think it had a million views. Uh, to date, last time I checked, it was over 30 million views. So it was on, they interviewed me on CNN. It was on you know, every website, every tech website, every political website, every newspaper article, magazine, uh, whatever it was. So it went kind of crazy. Before viral was a was a term, it, it was a viral picture. So that kind of started me on that path. And I, I wound up using that technology at other events, as you mentioned, Olympics and Super Bowls and bringing that to other clients. Because again, what can I do to separate myself? I can just go and shoot the Super Bowl, which I had done before, or I can shoot the Super Bowl and do a gigapan. And then people who are at, uh, I did it at a lot of World Series games. People who were at the game back then, I don't know if you remember on Facebook, you could you could tag yourself in photos. You could like select the spot where you were. So we had it set up so you could, those were for MLB.com for Major League Baseball. You could, at the World Series, you could zoom in. I would shoot from the outfield of the whole crowd and the field, and you could zoom all the way in and find yourself at the game, tag yourself, and then it would post on your wall and then your feed or whatever uh. it was. And that went super viral as well. So I did that for a bunch of years too. So yeah, it was uh, it was kind of crazy for a while there. The you know I was known as the the, the Giga Man or the Gigapan guy or whatever, and uh, it was fun. It was a good uh, a good run there for a while. Now it's the technology is a little older now, and the company's out of business. And I've I did one about four or five years ago for a corporate client, um, but it's definitely uh, kind of ran its course, I think. But it was it was very cool at the time. Is it is there? Um... An alternative for that? But I mean, how would you do that nowadays with, with Gigapan being Is there a, what? Is there like an uh, I mean, alternative? I, I still have the hardware. I still have quite a few units um, uh, that, you know, and I, like I said, I did one, I can't remember, it was about three, four, five years ago, like I said, for a corporate client. Um, but I would still, if I got hired to do one today, I'd still probably use that hardware. The stitching software, I, I think is too old now, but there are better, you know, newer uh, pieces of software out there like PT GUI and things like that that are good for stitching those really big panoramics. And yeah, I can still do them, but, uh, you know, it's, I did quite a few of them, you know, the early Bon Jovi days, I, I did that. That's actually the, one of the first things I did for them was, and again, that's what got me kind of in the door with them. Remember I told you the digital thing really ingratiated me at Sports Illustrated. The Gigapan is really how I got in with Bon Jovi because they were kind of like, yeah, tour photography, we've been there, we've done that. And then I, but they knew the Gigapan. They, John Bon Jovi was at the inauguration. And management knew it, and they had seen it, and they knew that picture. And I, they were like, "Can you do it? At, could you do something like that at a concert?" And I had never done that before, but I was like, "Yes, of course, I absolutely can." And uh, that night, I did a gigapan at that at a concert. And the next day, I brought in a giant print that I had made of the whole scene that was super high res, and they all went, "Wow, that's cool! Let's do it again." And uh, that was my beginning with Bon Jovi. So, uh, you know. It, that technology worked out pretty well for me. I mean, it is fantastically um, fascinating. I, you know, I spend way too long <laughs> just zooming in and taking out all the details. I mean, you know, with yeah. the integration uh, image, yeah, I mean, literally, you can see people on the other side of the road, like outside of the capital area, and you can zoom in yeah. and you can, like, you can see details. It's just, it's And again, phenomenal. there was so much fun stuff to see in that particular picture because every celebrity in the world was there. Yeah. There were snipers on the rooftops. What's funny to me is that every few years it comes back around, like one of my friends will receive it forwarded from their crazy uncle. And, uh, 
and the you know it, there's this like look at what the you know china is spying on us and look at what they did at obama's inauguration from the satellite and you know and it's my picture right and so they'll they'll you know one of my friends will receive an email like that not from a relative but from somebody and uh, they'll see it and they'll send it to me they'll be like oh look at what you're causing all kinds of trouble you know and i was like it's just me it was just bergman uh it's not china from the satellites or anything like that so uh, it's kind of funny to be part of history like that. Yeah, I was uh, I was looking around for uh, the types of cameras and lenses people were using, and I saw this uh, one of the it must have been a serviceman on the far side, and I was like, oh, right, oh yeah, he's using oh yeah, that's the that's a Nikon uh, seventy two two hundred lens with the exact uh, that's go. exactly the same model that I used. <laughs> that was the, nice the, fu- the funniest one to me in that picture is uh, Yo Yo Ma, the you know the cellist played before the inauguration. And he's right behind, you know, sort of on the uh, the proscenium, I think they call it, right above the, uh, you know, uh, behind where the ceremony's happening. And uh, he's got good a good seat. But he literally was, happened to be, at the moment I took the picture, standing up, taking a picture with his iPhone, which was iPhone version one back then. That was the very first iPhone in 2009. And I just think it's the funniest thing that you can see Yo-Yo Ma, who's this, you know, classy Chifano, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, symphonic cellist, and he's just taking a picture with his phone. This was before everybody had a phone. Now, of course, it would be all people with their phones. But uh, back then, it struck me as really funny. But yeah, you can zoom in there and see every celebrity, every political figure, anybody who was anybody was at that event. So it was a, it was a big deal. Yes, I mean it's fantastic. It's really um, it's mind boggling. You know, when you really when you zoom in, you can see all that detail. It's completely mind boggling. Of course, he did the same then, thing at the. Um, I believe it was to women's beach volleyball at the yeah, that was a Olympics. Fun one. Yeah. Yeah. My- yeah. So in London, I did at the at the Olympics in 2012, right? 2012 mm-hmm. or 2012, I think it was. I think the it was, London yeah. Olympics. Um they uh I was working for both Sports Illustrated and NBC actually brought me in. So I was doing some work for the Today show and then uh so NBC so Sports Illustrated was using me for some stuff and then so I was doing gigapans at a lot of the events in addition to some other things. And, uh, and yeah, the beach volleyball one was fun because it was daylight, which makes it so much easier because you've got the field and you've got other things you don't have to worry about. And like, there's a gentleman who is painting the same scene that I'm shooting, but from the other side, he's on the roof of a building across the way. And I love zooming in on him and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'm in his picture and he's in my picture. That's kind of funny, but, um, but it's a, I tried to make it so it's a beautiful image just on its own, you know, before you even know that it's high res and then add in the fact that you can zoom in because it was so cool. They had the beach volleyball, uh, uh, turn, you know, tournament set up right in the middle of the city. They sort of built that. I don't know that part of town. I'm sure you do, but, um, the London eye is in the background and, and it's just not normally a beach. It's not on a beach. It's, they built sort of a beach area yeah. right in the middle of these buildings and it's just beautiful. And the, they have the grandstands there and it's really a nice, I mean, I would I shot the same picture with my traditional, you know, regular camera because um, it's a nice picture. But then the fact that you can zoom in and you can see, literally, you can see the toenail polish color, you know, the color of the toenail polish on the beach volleyball players. Well, it's which is insane. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think it's the uh, Greenwich Naval Academy. I think it's okay, and it's um, you can see 
as you say, you can see the, the London Eye in the background. But not only that, yeah. because I zoomed in, you can actually see the people inside of the little, <laughs> little people in there cavern watching things. the volleyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see the detail. It's yeah. just, it's just, uh, yeah. it's unbelievable. The biggest one, the biggest one of those I ever did was uh, Cannon had me do one at a Yankees game, a New York Yankees baseball game, for this thing called the Cannon Expo in 2015, I believe, and. The 5DSR, which is a 50 megapixel camera, the Canon 5DSR had, had, I don't know if it had been, I don't think it had been announced. I think it had maybe had been announced, but obviously they were hiring me to do this. So I, I was using that. It's 50 megapixels. And I did one that's at a Yankees game, at a live Yankees game. There was 825 individual 50 megapixel images. And then it took an hour to shoot and took three months of post-processing because Whoa. stitching all of that together and then... They purposely sometimes the you know the World Series or whatever we want to post it the next morning. So I'm fixing major errors, but I can't zoom in on every face in the crowd. This one they wanted people to be able to walk up to it. They basically printed it at almost life size, not quite life size, but but it was something like uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like 300 feet wide or something like it was massive. Maybe it wasn't 300 feet, but it was maybe 120 feet. It was massive biggest i've ever had a picture printed they had to print it in panels giant panels and they they basically turned this expo center into a small version of yankee stadium and once an hour yeah they had presentations and they were showing off big lenses and things like that and then every hour they would let people go out onto the field and you could walk up to the wall and see every face in the crowd you could read the price of the hot dogs in center field which was like 400 feet away and, you know, I shot it from the first base uh, uh, dugout. So it was that one we had to, we, you know, I actually hired a couple of people to help me with that because it was just so much work. But you talk about image size. I remember that was the first time I learned, at least back then, I don't know about today, that Photoshop had a file size limit, <laughs> which I had no idea. It was something like 300,000 pixels in one direction. And this one was almost twice that. So I had to split it up into pieces to work on it. It was it was quite a technological challenge, but uh, we got it done, and it was printed, and it was one that I'm quite proud of. I think it was, I think it was just under 20 gigapixels, which is yeah, 20, however many that is, 20,000 megapixels, I think. So it's a lot. It's a lot of pixels. Yeah. Did, did you say it took three months in post production? Wow. Three months of post processing. Yeah, because me and 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 like two other people working on it, it took about an hour to shoot. And then, yeah, three months of, because again, we had to look at every face in the crowd. And if there was a, an overlap and from the stitch, from the automatic stitch, the first pass of the stitch, I had to go in and pull the original frame, overlay it, fix the face, you know, pick one, one or the other frame and fix it. And, uh, and again, had to work on it in pieces because you can't just open that whole image. And remember, this is 2015. So we didn't even have the processing power that we have today. Today, it would, it would still take a long time, but it would, obviously processing power helps. With this kind of thing, but just opening those images took, you know, it would take like twenty minutes just to open the picture. Yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of insane. I did a thing during lockdown um, where I got into light painting cars, and so oh, cool. So the way I did it was that I, you know, I shot lots of different uh, tons of images of of the same car, and uh, I, I would light paint with like a light stick. I would light paint individual parts of the car. Let's say the wheel hubs or the front of it or yeah. the roof or whatever. That's awesome. Um, and then I would stitch those images together afterwards, um, and I would I would literally create a composite out of all of these different images. So I'd have like, and what you get is this sort of hyper real um, photograph of a car, 
that looks more like a catalog photograph than than a real life sort of thing because because now you can perfectly light like you know the wheels and the inside of the wheel arch and like you know every little part yeah. of it um yeah and so when i i was sort of trialing it and i shot my car which is very uneventful uh toyota <laughs> rav4 or <laughs> so, okay not really you know, yeah. a very fancy car but um yeah, yeah. in my backyard you know. um and i yeah. i shot 190 images Wow. Um, and then I stitched Holy it together cow. and I, I came up against, you know, certain files. Probably the most ever, probably the most ever of a single RAV4. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the end result was very cool, but, um, again, I, I hit sort of similar, similar limits. Um, yeah. in in a sense, I, I didn't even know that there was a, there was a different how many layers, how many layers you can have. And yeah. Yeah. It's... It was like, uh, oh, I didn't know you couldn't save that as a, as a Photoshop file, it has to be oh, a right. special, yeah, like yeah. large Photoshop PSB file or something. Yeah, what PSB. is that? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. is that? You know, the, the Gigapans, the big Gigapans. You can't even do a PSB. You have to do. It's called a raw file, right. but it's not like a like a like a photo raw file. It's a it's a Photoshop raw file, and it it basically strips all information. You have to when you open that raw file, you have to put in manually how many pixels it is because it doesn't even know. Like it doesn't even know right. how to open it unless you. It's yeah, I don't know if that still is like that, but uh, I remember that was it was a challenge working on pictures that big. Well, what's the um, in sports photography generally? What's the what's the sort of standard turnaround time for for it for your images? Then, because I remember in the olden days, you know, in the old in the days of film, let's say, yeah, you know, you'd have to have like a runner, so you just you know you you shoot your film rolls, you throw them in the back, and they would run off to the photo editor's office or whatever, and have them developed or whatnot. But what is it? What's yeah. the turnaround time nowadays? Uh, I mean, again, I'm not shooting really much sports these days, but I think it just depends on who your client is. Fortunately, you know, the 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 later part of my sports career, I was working for Sports Illustrated, which was a weekly magazine. Yeah. So we weren't transmitting on site. To the the beautiful thing about Sports Illustrated was that they cared so much about the picture that they would much rather have you stay out there and shoot the whole game than try to run in and miss a big play to get a picture in. Now, of course, that's different if you're working for a wire service or a newspaper or something like that. It might, you know, my my times at the Miami Herald when we had switched to digital, it would be like the first thing that happens, especially if it was a night game, you know, there's a touchdown on the first drive, you run in and you transmit it, right? And because you're there by yourself, if obviously it was a big game, yes, you had runners and things like that. For something like the Super Bowl, Sports Illustrated would have 12 or 14 photographers and then a whole team of runners and they would be pulling cards and because that game's usually on a, I mean, it's always on a Sunday. So they want to get that in right away to the magazine and they'd have editors either on site. Now I assume they do it all remotely and they just send in, you know, maybe low res files and and then pull the raws. That's what we were doing when I, and last time I was there was they would, we would send low res files in and then they would of the whole take so that they could edit and then they would pull the raw files that they needed once they decided what they wanted. So, um, yeah, it just depends who you're working for. Obviously, like I said, something like a wire service, they're they're working fast. Some of them are, you know, transmitting from the sideline. Maybe they're going to even go wireless now. I don't. I don't even know. But thankfully, I'm not on that kind of deadline anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. That's one of those things I don't miss. But I, I read something um, only recently about you know the, the future generations of. Um, of the flagship cameras, you know, when it comes to Nikon and Canon, and see you know, where that could go. Um, and I think there was some talk of you know potential as of wireless transmission technology in cameras that allows you to to literally just you know transfer sure. like wirelessly transfer images 
I mean, we right can do that body. from our phone, right? Yes, so correct. why not right from the camera? I mean, anything that's on my phone immediately gets backed up to the cloud. So, um, so yeah, I'm sure that could be done. But you know, that's kind of a niche market that needs that. I know the camera companies are always they always make a big deal about their transmission capabilities and you know networking capabilities and you know for most people they don't need that but the people who do it's really really important so um you know that pro level sport photographer that kind of thing but i don't really need it. even for concerts i mean i'm by myself photographically so i shoot i don't you know we don't need to upload pictures before the show is over so the end of the show then i start to do my edit i'm usually done by the next day sometime and then in the case of luke combs they usually only post about once a week so, cause we'll do those shows, you know, maybe the Thursday, Friday, Saturday now is only going to be one show a week. So I would imagine by, if the show's on Saturday, they're probably not going to post till Monday. So that gives me Sunday. I can fly home. I can work on the plane. If you ever, if you're ever sitting around me on a plane, you've seen me editing away on an airplane and, uh, um, and then I can transmit that night and, and, uh, hopefully get a, get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your Ask David Berkman show on Adorama TV. Um, We've uh, we've had quite a few of your Adorama colleagues um, on the show already, um, of course. But your show is very interesting because actually it's different in the sense that people can actually go onto your website and ask a question, and then you'll address. Well, I guess you pick from a pool of questions, but you'll address some of those queries um, directly on the show, which is fantastic. How did you how did you come up with that format? Yeah, I mean, I think that was just it was practical uh, like i mentioned earlier i the first three years on adorama it was called two minute tips with david bergman and i liked a very short format because it was like i would pick a topic and i picked all the topics and i would just pick some kind of photo topic um and we would do it as close to two minutes as possible and it was it was highly produced i worked with a a, a friend of mine who, who who was my videographer and he edited most of it and we made it really tight and with music and it was just, and I got a lot of good comments about that. Like, oh, it's great. I don't have to watch for, you know, 30 minutes to learn one thing, right? I can just get it and quick hit and get out. And I did like that. But I think at some point, I mean, I'm not going to say I ran out of topics because you're never going to run out of topics. But I just felt like there's there were some things that I needed to expand on more. And it was limiting to do it in two minutes. And I did 152 of those, I think. So over three years. So... Um, I came up with the idea for that next year to change it over to Ask David Bergman. It was kind of my working title almost as a joke, like, oh, just be Ask David Bergman. And then now it's stuck. But <laughs> um, so uh, I have a little silly uh, intro graphic that's like uh, family feud. It's Ask David Bergman. So my friends like to give me a hard time about that. But um, uh, and yeah, I you go on askdavidbergman.com and you could submit a question. Yes, of course, I get a lot more questions than I can possibly answer. Uh, the Usually the ones the ones I will pick, uh, first of all, I have to have an opinion about it. I have to know something about it. I've, I've done a few that I don't know too much about, and I do the research, and I make sure I know what I'm talking about. But uh, occasionally I get something where it's too, like, like too specific. You know, somebody's like, what does that button do on my camera? You know, it's like, I, you know, that's not going to help too many people. So... Uh, I, I won't do that. Or sometimes it's literally a yes or no answer, you know? Um, but even with that, sometimes I get, I have one in my queue right now that somebody asked, they said, does diffusion fabric lessen the amount of light that comes out of a softbox? And of course the answer is yes, you know, but I can make that into a video because now I can go, okay, how much? 
How much light do you lose? This double diffusion, do you lose twice as much light? Do you lose two stops and one stop a single, you know, I could, I could make that into a video. And, you know, I, I do say on the, on the website, your, your question may be edited for brevity or clarification or something like that. So I can change it up a little bit to make it more relevant to more people. Um, instead of just a, you know, I'm tempted to do one, one week go, you know, this is the question, blah, blah, blah. The answer is, Yes. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Come on back next week. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. So, uh, yeah, so it's been good. And I feel like I'm never going to run out of topics because people always have questions and I can always reframe something in a new way and and look at it. You know, even for myself, I'm always learning. I mean, this that's the beauty of this profession is you're. I'm always learning. I'm still learning as a photographer. And people throw things at me that I go, oh, I, I, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, let me think about that. And I spend a lot of time, like we've been talking about as a photographer, I spend a lot of time doing my research. I spend a lot, of, I need to make sure that if I say left instead of right, you know, that I'm right, that I'm correct on that for the most part. So, um, um, so yeah, some of it is, you know, opinion and, and just this, there are a lot of different ways to do things, but I've enjoyed it. It's fun and uh, people seem to like it. I get, you know, I was just at uh, Imaging USA uh, recently, which is a big, one of those big photo conventions. Uh, this one happened to be in Nashville and people came up to me at the show. Oh, I watch your show every week. And and that's really nice that people enjoy it and they, it's help. It helps people and they've learned from it. So I'm going to do it until, uh, you know, until they tell me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the Camera Shake podcast if if I didn't have a particular question for you as well. Oh, boy. So okay, my my bring question is, what is the biggest light source in our galaxy? Oh, uh, no, okay. you're going to get one that one. Wow. Wow, you're going there. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I screwed that one up. So the story there is that, like I just said, I do my research and I make sure to get get it right. I'm talking about the photography. <laughs> when I sometimes talk off the cuff, sometimes. So yes, I had I was having a discussion about hard light and soft light and relative size of the light and you know the the softer the light is, the, the bigger the relative size. Blah blah blah. And I mentioned well, the sun of course is a giant light source, so you'd think it would be soft light, but it's so far away that it's a small relatively small when you look at it. And I made the comment, I said, yeah, the sun is the largest light source in our galaxy and blah, blah, blah. And oh man, they ripped me up in the comments on that one. Because no, I know it's not the largest light source in the galaxy. It's the largest light source in the solar system. I'm not an astrophysicist. I should have known that. Uh, you guys are right. I was wrong. And yeah, I messed that one up. But, but my photography part was correct, but yeah, that yeah. one was wrong. But you got corrected by, by somebody very specific very special who's that i think wasn't it um was it degrassi tyson oh, corrected Neil DeGrasse tyson. Well, so so i mentioned this uh in a recent video uh actually there's a comedian named dean edwards right. who is on one of my recent uh videos and he's he's a he's a famous comedian he's got a netflix special he was on saturday night live for two seasons and he was nice enough to come in and pose for one of my one of my ask david bergman videos recently and uh, he does impressions and he, he actually, uh, his, I always say, I don't know if he, he thinks this is amazing as I do, but he plays Eddie Murphy when Eddie Murphy is not available. So literally oh, wow. Dean did the voice of donkey, which is the Shrek character donkey in a movie. When Eddie was not available to do the movie, they brought in Dean to do donkey, to do Eddie doing donkey. That's wow. how good he is. Yeah. So, um, 
So I mentioned that it came up in that video, something about the sun again. And I, and I said exactly what I said to you. I know I messed it up. And he went into a Neil deGrasse Tyson action <laughs> and, and, and corrected me Look on it. that. So yeah, you were right. I would love to get I, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's like one of my, you know, if you could have a, a dinner party with anybody living or, or, or not, um, I just saw he just did, this is completely irrelevant, but he just did an interview with, it was about a year old, but I just watched it. Neil deGrasse Tyson interviewing Malcolm Gladwell, who's like my favorite author and and my favorite astrophysicist. I don't know. I probably only know one of those, but um, I was like, that would be a fun a fun uh, dinner party to have those two guys at. But oh, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, would, I, I would come to that dinner party just to listen to the voice. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Absolutely. absolutely. But of course, you know, I've actually, I've also uh, done the, the research. In fact, I just... Uh, uh, I just I just asked my AI buddy, <laughs> oh, and, and I have the actual answer for you. So because you know the uh, the biggest light source in our galaxy, do you know what it is? I do not. All right, it is actually the supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way. It's called Sagittarius <laughs> A, um, and it shines bright in all wavelengths due to the intense gravitational and magnetic fields surrounding it. So there, there you, go. you go. There you go. Thank I, you very much. I thought it was going to be like Wait, a, a black. A black hole is the largest yeah. light source. That seems anti uh, what you would think, but exactly, exactly. I thought like, oh, wait, which star would that be? But no, it's the supermassive black hole in the center. You of know our what? Galaxy. I'm going to stick with photography, <laughs> and I think we'll be we good for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Same That's here. awesome. Same here, um, David. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for being our Thank guest Thank you today. for having me. It has been a joy. I've enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Really fun. Uh, we have so many similar interests. It's, it's been really fun. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's David Berkman, and this is the Camera Shake Podcast, episode 140. Um, remember, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, uh, just remember that there's a fully-fledged, fully technicolored version over on YouTube. And uh, once you're there, do the flavor and do what all you know YouTubers tell you to do. Um, hit the like button. Um, hit the to subscribe and bell and all of the rest of that jazz uh, because that really does help us uh, being found and of course if you are insistent on listening to the audio version on Apple Podcasts you know leave us a five star rating give us a little review for the very same reason it really does help us being found because you know the more people listen to this podcast the better so thank you very much and um, this is us episode 140 over now we'll see you again next Thursday <laughs> <laughs>